Hey everyone, thanks for coming. We'll start in around five minutes. Thank you. Hi, Brittany. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Good, thank you. So, um, so when there's this feedback noise, when we are not speaking, we uh, mute ourselves. So, mm -hmm. this button is on the bottom right hand. Um, there's a little microphone symbol. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll wait a few more minutes, um, you know, until 1 p.m. EST, and then we'll start. Thanks for coming. Sure, yeah, no problem. Sounds good. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm pinging people in and sharing it. Um, thanks for coming. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Hello, Dr. Needham. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you too.
Okay. Um, so as people are coming in, uh, I'll just like to direct some of you to the paper up top. Um, it's a wonderful paper. That's what we'll be discussing today with Dr. Needham. Um, and it talks about the study. Um, and yeah, we'll start soon. Katarina is still pinging people in, but we're going to start in just a, a minute or so. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so yeah, we can just start and then um, when people come in, we can, we can slowly, you know, we can, we can always resummarize um, a little bit. Sorry for my background noise. My kids are from home today, so schooling from home. So there might be some kids and random background noise. Um, yeah, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, we are very honored to have uh, Dr. Brittany Nitem here. She will talk about her really interesting and, and from my point of view, very important study. And so we are very honored to have you here and just to give you like a short um, introduction. Um, uh, Brittany, she or Dr. Needham, she did her uh, PhD in Stevens Trent's lab at um, in Austin, and um, she's a postdoctoral scholar at Caltech since 2014, and um, yeah, she has been doing really interesting work, and uh, she will share her um, amazing publication with us. Uh, congratulations to your um, to this amazing publication, Brittany, and the stage is yours. All right, thank you. Thanks for that introduction, and you can feel free to call me Brittany. Um, all right, so I am really interested, and as a postdoc, I've been studying the signaling that occurs between microbes and the host, and so this this work is kind of the culmination of looking at one particular microbial signal and how we have found that it influences the brain. <clears throat> and I don't know, just to kind of generalize things, depending on the, on the background of the audience. Um, so we all have a very dense microbial community living in our guts, uh, made up of bacteria and viruses and fungi and archaea. And collectively, this community is called the gut microbiota. And every one of us can harbor up to a thousand bacterial species. So this is a really dense, diverse community. And we share a very intimate relationship with our gut microbiota. It's very easy to imagine this close connection we have and the constant communication that we have at this interface between these microbes in our gut and, and ourselves localized in the gut and as far reaching as, as the brain. And this has been shown in a lot of different contexts. So there's a lot of benefits from having a gut microbiota. It helps prevent infections. It helps proper nervous system development and immune system development, uh, aids in nutrition, but it's very complex. So we have this very complicated ecosystem in our guts that is constantly exposed to our dietary molecules and host molecules, and then it has incredible genetic diversity and a lot of uh, unique enzymes that can then break down all those molecules that it's constantly in contact with. And then it is providing this immense pool of molecules that get into the host 
and circulate and reach the brain even sometimes. Um, but it's this complicated network of all of these molecules produced by the microbes and their own complex systems. So it's been very difficult to kind of tease out what are the relationships between the microbes and our own systems. And this has been particularly difficult, I think, in the context of neuropsychiatric conditions. But there have been a lot of examples of um, you know, groups of individuals, their, their fecal samples, their microbial community profiles differ in the context of various neuropsychiatric conditions or neurodegenerative diseases, um, examples like Parkinson's, um, autism spectrum disorder, depression, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's. So there's these associations between altered microbes and microbial communities and then these um, conditions. But it's been very difficult to move away from association and correlation to find causative effects. And a lot of people have been working on this in different mouse models and, and different ways to manipulate the microbes. Um, but I really, with this work, wanted to pinpoint one particular signal and find what is this signal doing and what are, what are its specific effects. And so um, this kind of brings me to the beginning of this work. And in figure one, um, we first engineered a, we identified the pathway for this one bacterial metabolite. It's called 4-ethylphenyl sulfate, uh, or 4-ethylphenol, which is made by the bacteria. And then when it gets into the host, it gets sulfated and becomes 4-ethylphenyl sulfate. And so I'll call these 4-EP and 4-EPS. And I might use those interchangeably because in the host, it's made by bacteria to be 4-EP, but then quickly it gets sulfated to 4-EPS. And so um, we haven't teased out exactly which, which version of that molecule might be the most bioactive, but it's quite quickly sulfated. So we measure mostly 4-EPS in the host. Um, and the reason that I was interested in this molecule is um, somebody previous to me in our lab, uh, it was Elaine Shao, who's now on the faculty at UCLA, identified this metabolite for EPS was really high in a mouse model, <coughs> excuse me, of <coughs> altered neuro, neurodevelopment. And then I, in this lab, uh, did a metabolomics study, untargeted global metabolomics on a large cohort of children on the autism spectrum compared to controls. And we also saw that this metabolite was about sevenfold higher on average in the, in the samples um, from children on the on the autism spectrum. And so this metabolite was really interesting, and I was curious to see how is it influencing the brain? Is it directly, is this a, a mechanistic causative relationship? So we identified the metabolite and the, the biosynthetic pathway, and we engineered it to be produced in bacteria specifically so that we could have uh, two groups of mice, basically one that has a metabolite and one that doesn't, but they're otherwise exactly the same. And so figure one that just in the A just shows the pathway and then B, C, and D is showing our engineering of producing bacteria that can either make the metabolite or if you see the missing peak, uh, we, it doesn't make it. So in D, that's probably the simplest w place to look. And we see that in the 4EP minus group, we get no 4EP produced by these bacteria, and then 4EP plus, we do see 4EP, and that's in vitro. 
So then I was able to take germ-free mice. So these are just mice that are raised in a germ-free isolator. So they have no exposure to microbes in any way, not in their guts or, or in or on them anywhere. And then we can basically feed them one bacteria or the other. And so they're either exposed to bacteria that can produce this metabolite or bacteria that don't. And these bacteria are otherwise exactly the same. It's actually a pair of bacteria. And um, we end up with two groups of mice. So they're well-type mice and um, totally the same except for the bacteria that are in their guts now are either producing 4-EP or not. And we colonize them and let them, you know, grow normal, like live in their cages, and then we can test test them after that. And so that's what we've done um, in figure E, F, and G of figure one panels. Um, I'm just showing that we can measure the metabolite. So the system, the model does work. When we put the bacteria in that can make the metabolite, we can measure it in the feces or in the serum or even in the brain of these mice. So I knew then at this point the bacteria, so I should mention also the host doesn't make this metabolite. So bacteria could be engineered to make it and then we could have this controlled system where mice could either have it or not. Um, but then beyond that, what was happening was kind of a black box. So we first wanted to do a broad look at the brain. And so we did functional connectivity imaging um, using, using ultrasound. So functional ultrasound imaging where you're taking advantage of the cerebral blood flow that happens. And these are on anesthetized mice. It's over a period of about 15 minutes and we can measure the, basically the patterns of signaling that's happening in the brain, the blood flow, blood, blood flow and activity, and then correlate across brain regions. So we can overlay brain atlas and identify brain regions and correlate how this patterning is, is related across the brain. And so that's in figure 2A. These are just correlation matrices and across the, the left and the bottom are the same regions and all correlated with each other. And you just kind of look broadly in A, you can see the bottom row, the 4EP plus, have warmer colors. So there's higher functional connectivity in the brains of mice exposed to this metabolite than in the, the control mice that don't have any exposure to 4EP, which is pretty exciting um, because all, the only difference is this one molecule that's being produced in their intestines, and now the, the brain patterning is, is showing some differences. And in B, just kind of pinpoints more closely what brain regions we're seeing these changes in functional connectivity. And so a lot of these are in the hypothalamus, thalamus, cortex, and, and a, lot of, a lot of regions that are involved in a lot of functions. Um, but we had reason to be looking closely at the limbic system. And so we were excited to see some of these regions pop up here. But to get it more specific um, resolution, higher resolution, we next performed some autoradiography. So this is in panel C of figure two. And what you're seeing here is a summary of the data. So each, each section that you see, a brain section, is actually um, data from the entire groups of 4EP plus over 4EP minus. And so in this experiment, we inject 
a radio labeled tracer into the mice and then we allow uptake of the tracer and then we can detect where is this tracer found in the brain and the tracer is um a deox is 2-deoxyglucose so it's a glucose derivative that can get in and it's taken up into highly metabolically active cells but then it gets stuck and so then we're able to measure what brain regions were the most active and so it's still assessing the brain at a very global um, in a global way, but it's measuring a little bit different than the functional ultrasound imaging does. And so, again, really interestingly, we see higher activity in the hypothalamus, uh, the BNST, the thalamus, and the amygdala, and a lot of regions that are really um, crucial to fear responses and anxiety and, and limbic responses. So this is very interesting, but um, still didn't get very close to a mechanism or an answer of really what's happening. And so we use this data and the, and the functional ultrasound data to inform us on some interesting brain regions that we did some mRNA sequencing on. So we selected six regions and performed RNA-seq. And the, this is in figure three now. So the main, we saw maybe some in, a lot of interesting results, but the main thing that we saw was that in one region of the thalamus, the, in the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus, the PVT in particular, we saw this altered profile of lower mature oligodendrocytes and newly formed oligodendrocytes. So we see these genetic signatures that these cells, of, of course, oligodendrocytes are the cells that produce myelin and are important for insulating axons for neuronal function in the brain. Um, we see lowered um, transcriptional profiles of the mature oligodendrocytes. And these are the cells that are really the producers of the myelin. The immature cells are not yet producing myelin. So it's very interesting. It gave us a cell type to follow up on and some brain regions to follow up on. And in D, I'm showing kind of the a correlation. So this is from the autoradiography method. If we pinpoint one particular region, the region that we saw the strongest genetic signature in, and then correlate that to all of the regions of the brain. Um, you can see in the top, pan the top of it in panel D, the 4EP minus group has a much different profile of correlation between that region in, than in the 4EP plus mice, which have much lower correlations there. So there seems to be some aberrant signaling and aberrant um, function happening in the brain, especially in the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus. And there's some indication that oligodendrocytes be, might be involved, which is really interesting. Oligodendrocytes are very cool cells. They, um, as I mentioned, are important for myelinating the axons. And there's been a couple of pieces, a couple of hints that the gut microbiota might be able to regulate oligodendrocytes. So somebody else um, in 2016, there's a cool paper where they looked at germ-free mice compared to conventional mice that just had normal microbes in their gut. And they saw very different thickness of myelin in the, in the prefrontal cortex of these mice. Uh, the germ-free mice had thicker myelin than the conventional mice. And then another work, I think last year, they, uh, another group treated mice with antibiotics. And so it was almost mimic mimicking a germ-free system, and then looked later, and these mice also had very altered oligodendrocyte profiles in the brain compared to um, conventional mice. So there's this indication that microbes in the gut 
can alter oligodendrocytes. And um, there's also been really cool work recently showing that oligodendrocytes are not simply, um, you know, during development, wrapping the axons up with this myelin, and then their only role is to sit there and maintain it. They're very important for uh, neuronal function in a variety of ways. And some really cool data has come out showing that oligodendrocytes may be important for a lot of different behaviors, um, fear and stress and memory. And this uh, extends even into adulthood. And this has been shown in, in animal models and in humans. So I'm very excited about these cells. And it's really cool that this one bacterial metabolite that we identified can be produced in the gut and then potentially alter oligodendrocytes. But at this point, all I had was some RNA-seq data. And so I wanted to go further. And in the rest of figure three, I started looking at more of the cellular morphology. Is there is there actually a difference to these oligodendrocytes or are we just seeing you know, some RNA signatures that are different. And so in panel E, I did some staining for an early marker and a mature marker of oligodendrocytes. So NG2 on the right in red is, a, is an immature oligodendrocyte marker, and CC1 is a marker for a mature oligodendrocyte that is then one that's making myelin and um, kind of doing the normal function of an oligodendrocyte. And so across the top is 4AP minus and 4AP plus is on the bottom. And you can see pretty clearly, I think, just with these representative images, that NG2, the early marker, is a lot higher in the 4AP plus mice and that CC1 is lower in these mice. And so we seem to have this altered ratio of oligodendrocyte differentiation and maturation that the metabolite is linked with um, this almost... It, potentially a stall in differentiation. The early markers are, are really quite more abundant than the mature markers. And that's quantified in the paper. And then we also looked at using other methods like um, flow from Western blots to try to corroborate this, this phenotype. And we also looked in vitro. So the, the rest of this figure kind of in, uh, let's see, I, H, I, yeah, <laughs> I through L, um, we did an in vitro ex vivo uh, organotypic slice culturing where you um, take brain tissue and then ex vivo, we exposed it to the metabolite and we see some of these same phenotypes are, are occurring ex vivo too. So it's some indication that this might be a direct effect of 4EP, which we know gets into the brain and then might actually be directly affecting these cells. Although there's a lot of work to do still there to um, confirm that this is a direct effect and that there's not a peripheral uh, pathway involved. And then, so figure four, we then wanted to look a little bit more closely. The oligodendrocyte differentiation patterns seem to be different, but what about the functional readout of oligodendrocytes, the standard like myelination assays? And so we performed electron microscopy. So here are some electron tomographs in panel D, which are then quantified in A through C. So if you look in D, maybe the easiest one, <laughs> looking at this figure, these are very tiny arrows, but if you look in the middle panel, um, kind of the medium resolution, you can see that there are myelinated and unmyelinated axons. Actually, maybe in the very top, it's easiest to see. So these darker circles, this is um, a region of the brain where the axons are all in parallel. So if you imagine the axons all coming out from the screen, and then taking a cross-section. So these, all these circles are axons, 
And then the darker gray that you see is the myelin around the axons. Um, and in the 4EP plus at the very top, it looks like there's a lot of space in between these dark gray circles. There are actually axons there. So we don't see any difference in number of axons between the groups of mice. But we do see a difference in the number of myelinated axons in 4EP plus. And um, depending on your screen, you might be able to zoom into these images to see these unmyelinated axons better. But we don't see a difference in number of axons. We don't see a difference in the diameter of the axons, but we do see a difference in how many of these axons are myelinated and also um, some modest changes to how thick the myelin layer is. So that's measured by G-ratio. So a higher G-ratio actually indicates a thinner layer of myelin. And we see um, a higher G-ratio or thinner layer of myelin in the 4EP plus group. And you can kind of see that subjectively in the bottom image of D, that, where you can even count the myelin sheaths. And the 4EP plus group has a little bit thinner myelin around these axons. Um, so it's exciting to see that there is actually a functional, actual change to the myelin in addition to just the profiles of these oligodendrocytes. And we also performed some, some MRI looking at the organization of the myelin. And in panel E, I'm showing just from one region. So this is the PBT. But in the supplement of the paper, we also show in the whole brain and some other brain regions that we see a decrease in organization of the myelin by um, diffusion tensor imaging. And I can expand on that if anybody's interested. And then um, kind of just the final aspect of the paper was that with all of these changes in brain patterns and then changes to these oligodendrocytes and this, and this cellular level, kind of like, what's the point? Like, what do we see as a global change to these mice? And so we did a lot of behavior assays and I show several in figure four. Um, but we we did also do an entire battery of tests. So we looked at cognitive and motor function, um, various memory assays and uh, social assays, and then also anxiety tests. And the strongest phenotype we see is that the 4EP plus mice, so mice exposed to this metabolite through their guts by bacteria producing the metabolite in their guts, uh, have an increased level of anxiety-like behavior. So the tests I'm showing you here, so F, G, and H are showing anxiety-like behavior tests. And F is elevated plus maze, and G is open field. And if you're not familiar with these tests, these are both taking advantage of the fact that mice are exploratory in nature and curious, but they're also prey. And so they want to explore, but they also tend to hide in a safer region and are timid to go out somewhere that's exposed. And so in the elevated plus maze, it's shaped like a, just like a T and two arms are protected by walls and then two arms are open. So you can measure how much time a mouse is willing to explore in this open exposed arm. And then in the open field, it's basically a large open box and the mouse is placed in the box and allowed to explore. And you measure how much time is the mouse willing to explore the center, um, more exposed region of the box rather than stick along the walls. So in both of these tests in the 4EP group, these mice were less willing to explore the exposed regions of the, of the apparatus. And then a third test that we, we do is called marble bearing, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You put a mouse, you, you let a mouse habituate to a cage, and then you 
um, put in a grid of marbles and it's on top of bedding and they're allowed to dig and, and bury the marbles. And this can be a measure of a few different aspects of mouse behavior, one of which is anxiety-like behavior. So a more anxious mouse, we say, um, will end up burying more marbles and, and dig more. And so we see, again, the 40p plus mice do bury more marbles and have an elevated activity in this assay. So it's pretty exciting that um, this anxiety-like behavior makes sense with the brain regions that we identified as having um, differential activity and connectivity and may explain exactly why we're seeing phenotypes in this, in this type of behavior test. We don't see anything in any of the other behaviors really that we test, like cognitive and motor function. Um, we do see some alterations to some um, social phenotypes, which may be explained again by this anxiety-like behavior. Anyway, so then kind of the final part of the paper was um, to try to tie together these two phenotypes. We know that the oligodendrocyte phenotype is directly as a result of this metabolite because of our reductionist controlled system. And we know that our altered behavior is also a direct result of this metabolite. But whether these two phenotypes of the oligodendrocytes and the behavior are linked to each other directly, that the oligodendrocyte phenotype is causing this altered behavior was unknown. And I think even after what I will show you now, there are still a lot of questions to be answered. But we do have some indication that they are linked. So we treated the mice that were exposed to 4P or not, the same, same, two, same two groups, mice colonized by these bacteria that make 4P or don't. And then we treated those mice with a few drugs that are known to induce oligodendrocyte differentiation. Sorry, I need to clear my throat. <coughs> I had a cold this week, so my throat is kind of hoarse. <laughs> I apologize. <clears throat> um, okay, so we um, treated them with a drug that induces oligodendrocyte differentiation and increases myelination, and that's been established by others. Uh, so the one that I'm showing here is clomistine fumarate. And so we confirm in I that the ratio of oligodendrocytes is restored to control levels. And what you're going to want to compare is this. The dark green bar is the 4EP plus that you've seen all along in the paper. And then the lighter green bar, which is on the far right, is the, that group of mice <coughs> with uh, clomistine treatment. And in K, L, and M, I show you the same three behavior tests as in F, G, and H, but these are on different mice that are then uh, a completely different experiment, which are then treated with the clomistine. And we see an amelioration of the behavior phenotypes when the mice are treated with this clomistine. So when the oligodendrocyte phenotype is restored to control levels, we see an amelioration of this behavior phenotype and lowered anxiety-like behavior, which is exciting. And... Of course, there's a lot more uh, to answer, but exciting to see that oligodendrocytes really can be involved in multiple roles in the brain, and it'll be exciting to continue to see as people, um, inclu uh, including me, keep trying to answer some of these questions of how oligodendrocytes really are functioning in the brain and, and what are the limits of the roles that they're playing. Um, so I just talked a lot, but I'll kind of just summarize briefly and then open it up for questions um, that we, so we identified this 
um, metabolic metabolic profile that we were interested in studying. We found this one metabolite that was elevated in a few contexts that were very interesting. And so we identified the biosynthetic pathway and engineered bacteria to specifically produce a metabolite or be isogenic and identical except for lacking this pathway. And then when we colonized mice with these two groups, we found that that metabolite was sufficient to influence brain activity and functional connectivity and behavior and that this metabolite can regulate oligodendrocyte differentiation and function and potentially alter the behavior via these changes to the myelin and this aberrant myelination. Um, yeah, and so and actually in a separate manuscript that came out on the same day, we also um, treated mice and did, a, and did a clinical trial of... Um, a drug that removes 4-EPS from the intestines before it can get into circulation. And that, that also um, showed significant improvements to anxiety in both the mice and in the humans. So um, hopefully that this, hopefully this is beyond just a proof of principle, although um, it was fun to study a system where we're able to actually tease out exactly how one metabolite can be potentially influencing the brain, but it may also lead to some some improvements in a therapeutic setting too, which remains to be seen. We have more work to do there, of course. Thank you so much. And um, especially if you were sick, um, thank you for talking so long. Uh, sorry, you have to listen to my voice. <laughs> oh no, it was perfect. It's a, such an interesting study and it's, um, you know, how you dissect all of this out is, is uh, really amazing. And um, it's always interesting, like, I think how, like, years ago, people presumed, oh, just one, uh, one pathway can't be that important. But then you and I think also other people now show that there are, there are some pathways that are quite important and can influence so much. And oligodendrocytes also seem to be involved in so many different, um, you know, cognition and other um, mental health related disorder. So it's very interesting to see all these recent studies. So thank you for this. And um, yeah, I, I would like to give people a chance to ask questions first and then if we have time, I'll ask. So uh, Cecilium, you've been flashing your mic. Do you want to ask a question? Yes, yes, it's so interesting. Um, the question that I had for you, you kind of answered it towards the end um, about the other uh, manuscript that came out. So what I was going to ask was, uh, did you find any like uh, like a list of factors, some things that maybe um, regulated the the um, levels of this metabolite in um, in the in the microbiome? So I was wondering if there were specific things, specific um, conditions that encouraged or discouraged the production of this um, uh, metabolite and also if there was a way to maybe use that pathway of encouraging or discouraging um, the levels of that metabolite to treat anxiety and then you just mentioned that you did a clinical trial with the mice where we where you reduced the level of that um, and it actually treated the anxiety um, so that was really interesting um, because that's definitely another 
I think another pathway to treating anxiety, because um, there's so many things, right? When you talk about mental health and psychology, there's so many parts of the body, so many systems that contribute to that. And so looking at it through the, the gut, um, gut health is definitely an interesting way, but um, definitely if you do have an answer for the first part of my question, um, please go ahead and answer. Uh, if not, it's fine. <laughs> I know this is still relatively new, but yeah, I just wanted to ask that. Sure, yeah. Um... That is interesting. So I think you're thinking along the lines of, you know, what should we eat or not eat or or what probiotics should we take to try to regulate the levels of this metabolite, uh, which potentially could help us all feel better, especially the last few years. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. And part of the answer is just that it's very complicated still at this point. Like we identified a pathway that can um, convert. So this converts tyrosine, so dietary tyrosine or, or tyrosine from just normal breakdown in the body that the bacteria could come into contact with. Um, so tyrosine can be converted to 4-EP and 4-EPS. But it's not the only substrate that can be used because the gut microbiota just has such genetic diversity. There are other pathways that are also, some of them have been proposed. We've confirmed that there are some others. And then add to that that there are also um, many different enzymes and homologs that could potentially also converge into this pathway. So part of the problem is, yes, you could potentially regulate what you're eating, um, but you might balance that by eating something different. And then that also could be used by different microbes to end up with the same end product. So part of the problem is, at this point, we don't know enough about all, we don't have a list of every single microbe that could be helping with this pathway as part of the problem. It doesn't appear that there's one microbe. We haven't found any microbes that can have the whole pathway. It seems to be a collaborative effort in the gut to produce this molecule. And so it's, it's not easy to just get rid of one or, or take one bacteria. However, you know, there's possibilities of, could we engineer bacteria that uh, metabolizes 4-EP and that would just eat it up right away after it got um, generated and that that's a potential uh, and we haven't worked on that at all but that could be used as a probiotic so I think there is there's potential there and it's interesting but um, and I should say we did also test mice on a few different diets and we saw vast changes to the level of this metabolite depending on diet and so I think it could be regulated potentially but we don't know enough yet about how or what those products would be or what the what the end result would be yet Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I totally understand. Um, but the possibilities, I mean, I'm just thinking like long-term, the possibilities of this research, you know, it seems endless, right? Um, yeah. And there's so many ways we could go with it. And I like what you mentioned about creating a probiotic of like bacteria that can, you know, consume it once it is formed. That's definitely another pathway as well that we could definitely look into. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, but yeah, that's all I had for right now. Uh, Denise, do you have anything? Thank you, Zizi. Hi, Brittany, this is Denise. Um, thank you so much for sharing your work and space and, with, uh, and time with us. Sure. Uh, it's very exciting that you mentioned that you actually had tried different formulations of diet because a lot of the times that's definitely not on the plate. I was wondering if you could get into that a little bit. Sure. Um, when we were first engineering the strains, one thing we tried was a high-protein diet thinking that if there were high levels of tyrosine, then the substrate 
would be more readily available. And then that was just, we were trying to do that in a, in effort to elevate the levels that our engineered strains could make to try to really boost our system. Um, and that was, that was somewhat successful, but I do think that there's a cap on our engineered strains. And so I think they were already maybe producing as much as they could. And so that didn't, that wasn't hugely effective, but we did take also that. So that's in the context of our engineered mice, engineered strains. So they're germ-free except for two microbes in their gut. We took conventional mice that then have just like a normal microbiota. They have lots of bacteria in their guts. And we put them on a diet that was made mostly from fish meal. And so the the sources of substrate that they could have to, to likely shuttle into this 4-EPS pathway would be mostly amino acids. So mostly tyrosine would be available. And then we also put it on a high soy plant diet that would have um, many isoflavoids and um, also p-cumaric acid and other substrates that can be broken down, potentially shuttling into the same pathway or in alternative pathways to make 4-EPS. And we saw much higher levels of 4-EPS produced in these mice. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's in the supplement of the paper if you're interested. Um, and then I actually tried, so there's, um, there are a few molecules that can block the sulfotransferase. So the, the enzyme that can put the sulfate group on from 4-EP to 4-EPS, so these are host enzymes, and we studied which enzymes could work on 4-EP. And I was interested in blocking those enzymes. And so I tried to feed the mice a, a diet that would saturate the, the sulfotransferases and lead us to have mice exposed to 4-EP, but not 4-EPS to kind of block that last step of the pathway in effort to see if 4-EP or 4-EPS was more active. And I actually ended up with more 4-EPS when I did that. So um, that those diets I was trying could also be metabolized into 4-EPS. So that didn't work. Um, so I, it just shows really that the gut microbiota is remarkably adaptable to metabolizing many molecules that you give it. And so, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. If you have a follow-up question, please. It, that definitely answered the question. Um, yeah, the microbiome is <clears throat> critical in some aspects to the proper functioning of the rest of your body, as we're discussing right here. Um, I was curious if there was any plan to to work with, well, one, was there any plan to or to include serotonin markers? Like, were you looking at serotonin levels at all? Because that yeah. can be to anxiety. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I haven't gone there yet. Um, of course, when we started the project, you know that something's being produced in the gut, but there are a you know, several known pathways of how the gut could communicate with the brain. Um, for example, lots of immune signaling and um, also the vagus nerve. So some of that I haven't really explored. I haven't been able to find any evidence of immune signaling being the connection between the gut. I haven't looked at a lot of levels of neurotransmitters, though, in, including serotonin. Um, I don't see any difference 
in like corticosterone, like so that sort of stress pathway in the HPA axis, I don't, I don't think is involved in what we're seeing here, and I don't see don't see any immune involvement. And well, I don't see anything obviously related to neuroinflammation. Um, but yeah, I haven't looked at neurotransmitter levels and whether 4EP or 4EPS are even if they're acting directly on the brain. I don't know. Could they be altering some other pathway in the brain that then is downstream having an effect on oligodendrocytes or the behavior? And I haven't teased any of that out yet. We're working on that now. For sure. Beyond the beyond the scope for the moment. I understand. Yeah. Thanks. That's all I had for now. Um, would we like to pass the to Akil or Dr. Shaw? Which one would like to speak? Flash your mic, please. Yeah, Akil Baba. Okay. Yeah, hi, Brittany. Uh, so uh, my question was, um, does the, the does the stress level increase the production of the uh, the oligodendrocytes? So do you mean um, when they are behavior tested, does that alter the oligodendrocytes? So, so instead or do you mean of it being like a predictive, can it be a causative model? Like... Uh, like can oh, stress right. induce the production of more oligodendrocytes? Yeah, some of that is, I think, can't be answered conclusively yet because across brain regions and across studies and across models, so looking at mice versus uh, clinical trials and, and studies in humans, and across uh, neuropsych neuropsychiatric conditions. So I know that for example, so this project kind of began in the context of um, ASD, and there are quite a few studies actually looking at white matter and myelination and myelin plasticity in the context of autism in humans and a few in mice. And so there are alterations. Um, we also, uh, but sorry to finish my thought, those aren't necessarily um, consistent across studies. Some see higher myelination, some see um, lower, some see aberrant white matter. So it's, I think, hard to say at this point um, in, I think you're asking like in humans, like in humans with anxiety. And I would really like to, to go further with a study into um, anxiety outside the context of autism, because so far it's all been kind of contextualized that way. But I don't, I don't know if this is universally tied to many different contexts of anxiety. And I'd be really interested to look and find out and, and also to study more in in the white matter of these conditions and, the, and look at the myelination. Same thing with schizophrenia. So the, the mouse model of altered neurodevelopment that I mentioned where we saw elevated levels of this metabolite um, is used as a model both for autism and for schizophrenia. It's the maternal immune activation model. And kind of generally a neurodevelopmental model. But um, schizophrenia is another uh, human condition where we also see alterations to the white matter. So I'd be very interested to, to kind of be able to target that specifically to look and see. We came at it a little bit by accident. We had this metabolite and then we found that oligodendrocytes seemed to be involved. But now that we know that, I would like to really um, focus on that and see how much involvement there is and, and what those phenotypes really are involved in. 
Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Shah, um, Dr. Shah, do you have a question? Uh, thank you so much. It was really very good paper, actually. I was late a little bit, but I was just wondering to ask you about the role of the, I mean, biogenic, I mean, production by, by lactic acid bacteria, actually, when we want to consider it a probiotic lactobacillus, for example. In this case, do you have any information around that? Because there is a role of the probiotic lactobacillus bacteria, for example, in the gut, and sometimes they could actually undermine the immunity in some certain cancer because you just mentioned about the immunity. So I was just wondering if you have any information around that that you can share with us that would be wonderful. Thank you. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I don't know that any of my work gives strong evidence one way or the other for that <laughs> because we are engineering the pathway and we do see some of these genes are present in so some of the genes we use are from lactobacilli but i think there's a lot of work to be done still in the context of the complex community and looking of course across species and across the, the complex microbiota i don't i don't think at this point i can extrapolate into into those conditions that is really interesting and I think we see that all the time with the microbiota that one microbe or one function of the microbiota might be very important or beneficial in some contexts, but in another context, it might be um, shifting the balance of homeostasis and health in a, in a completely different direction in another genetic or, or other environmental context. I think a lot more has to be done before, before, before we could extrapolate there. But those are interesting questions. Thank you so much. Um, I was, oh, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so I was gonna ask like in figure four, if you look at uh, K, uh, like the, uh, the one with the 4EP minus, which were treated, um, I'm sorry, for uh, like the I in figure four, I, it looks like the ones which were treated, like the time that they were in the center actually reduced. So I was, uh, you know, and it, it looks quite a bit significant there. So it's uh, interesting what went there with, with those mice that were, you know, treated. You mean the, the mice that are exposed to the metabolite, but then are treated? Uh, 4EP minus, I'm talking about the, the, the gray ones. Oh, okay. Yeah. In K. Are you comparing that in, to... No, no, G? in I, in I, I'm sorry, in I. So comparing the, sorry, comparing the 4EP minus control in I to... The treated one. Back three. Oh, to the treated one. Yeah, yeah. So the the time in the center actually reduced after being treated for the for the four AP minus, while for the four AP plus. Okay, yeah. No, it's an L. That's why. I, yeah, I was looking at the wrong graph. Okay. Um. Yeah, I know that's surprising, L, L. and I don't know. Yeah, it 
I did do those stats, and I don't think that one was statistically significant, although I do agree with you. It looks like it might have been borderline, um, and I probably just didn't put the trending p-value because it wasn't a comparison. I was trying to keep the keep it from being cluttered. But, um, yeah, that's interesting, and I don't have an explanation for that, or I didn't follow up to see if that's really something. Because I, I did expect that maybe even the control mice um, would have – lower anxiety also in with this drug treatment. Um, I don't think that these, these are black six background and I don't think they're already at the top of their, you know, it's not like there's no further that they could go in exploration of these anxiety apparatus tests. Like obviously they could spend all of the time in the center if they were really um, induced to have less anxiety. So you're right. That is interesting. That's not a phenotype I saw often. Like I've done these tests a lot. It's not, I didn't always see the drug do any decrease in the control. So I think that might have just been, might be something you chalk just it up. Just the the animal behavior is variable. But. Okay, that's interesting. All right, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so hi, uh, I hope I said your name uh, right. Um, do you have a question? Yeah, hi. Uh, my question is not exactly about the study, but I want to know if, uh, like, about um, is there could there be a kind of evolutionary reason uh, for that, in the sense that it could be like um, I don't know about bacteria. I don't know about uh, what type of bacteria it was. Uh, so I may be completely wrong, but uh, could it be that it's, you know, there are some uh, um, there are some parasites, for example, that kind of somehow manage to, uh, in some sense, control the brain in the sense that they they change uh, certain behavior or it creates some biases, maybe chemically or something like that, could this bacteria doing something similar in the sense that it has evolved to change the behavior of the brain, well, in this case, uh, by causing anxiety or something like that, for some reason that it eventually is in its own benefit. For example, it can be a pathogen or maybe it's using resources of body and uh, the more stressed the person is, somehow is useful for this organism. Could it be a kind of uh, viable hypothesis? Sure. Yeah, I understand. Uh, there are examples, like you mentioned, in the gut microbiota of um, microbes that maybe promote social behavior and then uh, the host then is more social and then there's an exchange of microbes and, and there's some evolutionary benefit to the microbes. Or um, That's been seen with kind of mating behavior and other things like that. Um, that's possible. I, I mean, we could chat about that. It's fun to think about. I, I kind of think that it'd be more likely that the pressure is at a, at a smaller level, um, meaning maybe there are microbes that um, can use different parts of this pathway and precursors along the way as a carbon source. Uh, it's potential that 4-EP, which is a simple phenol, could be toxic to some bacteria. So it might be advantageous to some bacteria to 
um, metabolize tyrosine into this metabolite to then be competitive against other microbes in the gut. Um, so I maybe it's just because it's a smaller scale, so it's easier to grapple with um, it, when you're thinking about it. But that's kind of, I imagine that being a stronger evolutionary pressure for the microbes themselves at the molecular level. Although, of course, it'd be um, exciting to find if if there was some other selective pressure for microbes to produce this metabolite to then, um, I don't know, keep their hosts safe hiding in the hole rather than get, get eaten by prey. But that's, I think, uh, at this point, reaching reaching too far. Even what I said about um, pressure to metabolize this uh, for competition in the gut, of course, I haven't even shown any of that experimentally. So. Fun, fun questions to think about, but I haven't, I don't have any evidence to back any of that up yet. <laughs> Is there, in, in principle, um, are there ways to test for such pressures, like the one you said, such, such evolutionary pressures, if I'm understanding right? In the uh, gut, Are the yeah. methodologies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the gut, um, we could study what microbes in a natural setting produce 4-EP and which ones might be, have... Um, a growth defect in the presence of 4-EP or 4-EPS and which ones might use it as a carbon source. And some of that competition could, could definitely be worked out. As far as further on altering the host behavior, I would think that that would be very difficult to um, track evolutionarily. But Yeah, thank you. Can I ask a short question, another short question? It will be shorter. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you explained that, but this uh, for EPS. Uh, so if you inject that alone uh, or somehow it's injected, does it cause uh, anxiety? Is it tested or did you feel not need to test it? Is it something known? Uh, we did test that. Um... Elaine, before me, tested that a little bit. She did one of the behavior tests. She looked at open field and saw a reduction. This is with an IP systemic injection. Um, and that was over the course of three weeks, daily injections. Uh, so I did, when I first started this project, I replicated that result and expanded it to other anxiety-like behavior tests. And I, I do see anxiety-induced when... Uh, there is systemic in exposure to the molecule. I've also done it in the drinking water uh, with similar, you know, some overlap in these behavior phenotypes. So I think the, I mean, the main goal of the paper was to be able to expose mice in a biologically relevant um, mode of exposure, like by bacterial production of the molecule but we do see similar phenotypes when we inject it or, or expose the mice in other ways. Thank you. That was my question. Thank you very much. By yeah. the way, very nice study. I hope uh, there are more things like this uh, done in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, this Anyone have a question? If not, I'll ask. We had yesterday, um, I think that was really interesting. We had yesterday um, 
a researcher coming here and she did um, LSD uh, microdosing study um, that that didn't really show any any effect but there there are studies out there that claim that um, you know um, different hallucinogens have like anti-inflammatory effects and um, have also shown to have kind of an um, anxiolytic effect um, for a prolonged time. So um, I'm not sure if you you think that it, you know, it would be a hypothesis, but if it manipulates somehow this pathway and that's why we see um, such an effect or maybe could be modulating the oligodendrocytes um, or are you planning on maybe um, checking probably not but it's just something that would interest me to to know uh so you mean like a neuroimmune pathway yeah because there are studies that show that down regulates inflammation and then you know you have these anxiolytic effects of a different hallucinogen mm-hmm. yeah absolutely that was that was one of the first things when we generated these mice that one of the first things I looked at was, I mean, I just assumed like they're the four EPS. Oh, it must be inducing some neuroinflammation. Um, and surprisingly, so I, I did cytokine and chemokine analysis in the gut tissue serum and the brain tissue. And I don't see any changes in the blood or gut tissue. And then in the brain, I actually saw a decrease, if anything, in some inflammatory markers in the four EP plus mice, which is opposite what I expected to see. And I didn't really follow up on it because there weren't strong effects um, and it didn't, it didn't lend itself to um, something that seemed to be directly involved, but I was surprised to see if anything, a trend in the opposite direction of a decrease in, in neuroinflammation. Um, we did some other like immune profiling. I don't see any changes into microglia uh, either in differentiation or activation state. Uh, and then in kind of in the periphery, in the periphery, similarly T cells. And I did see a slight change in B cell, like it was significant, but probably not biologically meaningful, like a 5% difference, I think in B cell numbers in the spleen, but yeah, like really, really doesn't seem to be influencing neuroimmune pathways in ways that you might expect to see the phenotypes, like what you're describing in the context you've described. I, it, it doesn't seem, it's been hard to find any connection there is, is what I would say probably. That's so interesting. Um, so should we all just take antibiotics for now until we know better? I'm kind of joking. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> that was a joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Yeah, um, if we knew exactly which microbes and we could control that that microbe wasn't important for something else in a, a health perspective, then then the, then it'll be something. Then we can control these microbes and, and manipulate them for our benefit. But as for now, they're too good at playing too many different roles. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, does anyone have uh, more questions? Uh, we are, the hour is almost up, so we have like another minute or so. So yeah, please go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Just one question in the chat that I wanted to call out uh, from someone in the audience asked, um, what metabolites might promote myel myelination? So probably apart from this one. Oh yeah, that's interesting. So we can take a probiotic to promote the myelination and then we don't have to worry about 4EP or 4EPS because we've overcome it with something else. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head, what bacterial metabolites would promote it. That's something I'm interested in, in looking at because there are those couple papers and um, definitely interested in seeing how the gut microbes could modulate oligodendrocyte function and, and myelination. Thank you so much. That's it. <laughs> Back to you, Katarina. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, for people in the audience, if you don't have any more questions, the hour is also up. So, um, Dennis, did you hear my? I had one final quick question. Um, is there any potential for this research to help acute or chronic COVID patients? Acute or chronic, what kind of patients did COVID? you COVID? COVID patients. Oh, that's interesting. I have no idea. <laughs> Fair enough, thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's potential, sure, but I have no evidence whatsoever no idea but that's interesting i just want to say i love it that you always say i have no evidence so i can't say that is really good for a scientist to always stand by so thank you so much for doing that <laughs> yeah no problem okay um thank you so much for um sharing this and for guiding us through your article in such a comprehensive way i think it was really great to follow for all kinds of levels of understanding and background. So that was really great. Um, and um, please come back anytime with updates about your studies. We are all very curious um, to hear what's coming next. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, thanks from all of us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. And if anybody has further questions, feel free to email me or, or anything. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, hopefully see you again. So um, for everyone in the audience, uh, uh, if you don't, if you didn't have yet, please follow the Science Society um, on, you click on the little green house and uh, uh, you will hear more rooms like this with guest speakers. And um, we'll have, more next week and also on the on the weekends we usually have more like round table type of discussions um today we have um let's build an artificial brain step one damage a real brain i know the title is a little bit provocative but it has an interesting background um i, I was reading this dementia paper that uh, generalized um, computation basically in, in patients with dementia was kind of damaged and then 
I was immediately thinking, of course, about creating a generalized artificial intelligence. And then I used an AI to generate a text and title about this. <laughs> the, this writer AI came up with titles like um, the Holy Grail, uh, like Alzheimer's, the Holy Grail and and um, and like very weird titles. So I thought it was worth discussing. So we'll discuss that paper in the in the context of if we can use that data to basically um, create a generalized um, AI, which you know is a goal for a lot of people. We have a climate change innovations room this weekend, and then. Um, yeah, and then next week we'll have more. We have a uh, Dr. Alonem. Um, she's coming with her team to discuss about her autism study. She and she identified um, um, symptoms of autism that can be detected in the first year of life, and she's also creating interventions. And they created the intervention plan. So that will be really interesting so that's on Monday and then we'll have on Tuesday I think that paper is really interesting it was discussed in NPR I don't know if you heard about it to study about musicology and age interaction and tone development so basically they found that kids that grow up in languages that have tonality have a, a have a higher percentage in perfect pitch than kids that don't grow up in a language that has tonalities such as English and most European languages. So she will discuss that study and yeah, next time I'll say all the other rooms, but um, we have more or less every day a guest speaker and on the weekends like round table discussions. So yeah, come back and thank you, Brittany. Thank you, everyone, for the great discussion and questions. And see you soon, or hear you soon. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. You.